Hi, it's Jim Wilson. Welcome back to NGB Ideas. This podcast is about the journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community, and it's brought to you by LabOccupier.com. Our guest today is Ian McDermott from the University Health Network in Toronto. Ian McDermott, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. Before we talk about your professional journey, I'd briefly like to touch on your personal background. You're Irish by birth. Where exactly were you born? I was born in Cork in an empty house that my <laughs> mother was scrubbing the floors and couldn't make it to the hospital on time. You and your parents immigrated to Canada. Do you recall what year that was? In 1967. I was just a little gaffer. What brought your parents to Canada? Where did you grow up? Coming to Canada was a temporary thing. We were supposed to be here for five years. My dad and his dad, unfortunately, did not see eye to eye over a, a sad incident in a store that my dad managed for his dad where money went and disappeared. And his father sent the police without asking to his house to look for, to my parents' house to look for the money. And was obviously discovered much later on that that money was taken by a, a different employee and it was just a very sad and tense time, and so my parents felt they'd need to move away for five years. And literally, it was a flip of a coin. My mom wanted Australia, my dad wanted Canada, and my dad won the flip. We came to Canada and started in Montreal, but they quickly realized that was too much French, and they didn't have any French, so then they moved to Ontario, briefly in Toronto, but then really headed to northern Ontario. I've lived all over Ontario, mostly northern Ontario. And we found out in a previous conversation that you and I went to the same high school, didn't know one another at the time, and we lived a block away from one another at the time. <laughs> Absolutely. It was unbelievable. You triggered so many memories. I can't believe we've talked for all these years and didn't know that. I'm still processing it myself. I was a bit bookish as a kid and shied away from sports until I got to high school. Was your childhood similar? I was absolutely known as a bookworm. I devoured books. I couldn't read enough books. I preferred to read a book rather than watch TV. I'm terrible at TV trivia. Don't ever ask me TV trivia because I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea. Ask me about books. <laughs> I didn't really do a lot in the way of team sports. I was a runner, so I was a cross-country runner, and curling was my thing in high school. I think most kids at some point become interested in science, we all want to make things bubble and change color, and some of us want to make things go boom. I remember asking my parents for a microscope, and I got that because I showed an interest. The following year, I got a chemistry set. The novelty for me eventually wore off, but I understand you knew in grade school that science was going to be your path. And what triggered it? I can remember sitting in grade four going, I need to go to university and understand science. At grade four, like what kind of geeky kid does that, right? <laughs> I can remember being in grade seven and asking, okay, what's the path I have to get on to go to university? And the teacher going, slow down. It's okay. You're only in grade seven. And I'm like, but I need to do this. I too, I asked for the microscope. For me, it was very much biology. I was like, I loved my microscope and I was fascinated and everything that you could do with that microscope that they gave you the kit, I did it. And go out to the pond and pull stuff and look at it under the microscope. Oh, I just 
every high school science course you could take, every math course you could take. I did every single course that was available. I was fascinated about the biology of life and how things evolved and where things went, and it and never stopped. I know where you went to high school. We, we both attended Winnifield Secondary in North Bay. After that, you went to St. Mike's College at U of T and graduated in 1989 with a Bachelor of Science in Molecular Biology and Molecular Genetics. And I have to admit, just mentioning that degree makes me feel intellectually inadequate. Did you enter university thinking that biology and genetics was the plan from day one? You, you kind of alluded to that. Yeah, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to do science. One was immunology and the other one was genetics. I was interested in that in both the human world and in the plant world. And my passion while I took molecular genetics and molecular biology had ended up choosing that path. I've also got a major in botany because I took a lot of the plant-based molecular genetics and molecular biology. I've got a specialist degree in genetics and molecular biology and a major in botany. Well, I'm glad we're talking about you and not me. What was university like for you? Was university life something you enjoyed? I loved school. I was your classic geek. I went to class and studied. I read as my way of relaxing. Did not have a TV. I played squash to release tension. And I worked part-time. You need money as a university student. You're perpetually broke. So those were the four things. That was my life. Where did you work? I worked at a store called The Backstore. I learned more about the physiology and everything that was on the market there to help with their bad backs. Most people hearing about the degree that you have would think that pursuing a graduate degree would be the natural next step, but you didn't. I didn't. After getting, it was a four-year degree, and after getting to the end of my degree, I actually needed a break. I didn't want to go straight into graduate school. I wanted to work at the bench. I wanted to actually do some of that science. I applied for two types of jobs, one to work in cancer or one to work in crop management. I was lucky enough to actually get hired at the Ontario Cancer Institutes. That is now known as Princess Margaret Hospital. Actually, it's not the Princess Margaret oh. Hospital. It is the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. The Ontario Cancer Institute was the original research institute formed by the Ontario government to look into how to care for patients with cancer. This was something that was created back in the 50s. And so it started as solely a research institute. And then it incorporated within the institute a hospital, which was called the Princess Margaret Hospital. And then in the 90s, they way outgrew their old site and uh, were building the brand new site, which most people know today on University Avenue. When they flipped to the University Avenue, it became the Princess Margaret Hospital slash the Ontario Cancer Institute. Fast forward a few more years and the government decided to create another research institute called the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research, OICR, which is absolute, happens to be located in Mars, which is across the road. And everybody was getting confused between OCI and OICR. And so 
what was PMH OCI then went through a whole evaluation of what they should be known as and they didn't want to be known as a hospital they wanted to be known as a cancer center a place where patients go and get care for their cancer hospitals have a slightly different connotation than that and so it became the Princess Margaret Cancer Center PMCC which we can't use because it's already taken by the Peter Merck Cardiac Center <laughs> love my job at UHN so it's known as the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. And then within there, you have the Princess Margaret Cancer Research Institute. No longer OCI doesn't exist. PMH doesn't exist anymore. Thank you for that. When you started down this path, you worked at that time on B-cell development, which you said was a really cool job. What was it about that job that you enjoyed? I was utterly fascinated. So your immune system has B cells and T cells. And we have those early, quote, stem cells in our body. As those cells divide and grow, they differentiate into different types of cells. And some become B cells and some become T cells. I was literally taking as early a, a stem cell as I could before it would become a B cell. And then I would do all sorts of testing on it to determine when particular genes known for B-cell development started to turn on and when they would turn off. I'm very technical from that perspective. You're working with RNA, and this was working with PCR when PCR was just coming out, polymerase chain reaction. Today, everybody just says, oh, well, you did a PCR. Like nobody knows what really a PCR is because they never had to do it from the beginning. I had to make the enzyme. We had to get the vector and grow it up in the bacteria and make the enzyme and isolate the enzyme so that we could actually do the PCRs. Then it was like, okay, the information that we're getting out was a little bit messy. You'd look for a marker and it'd be like, well, it's really strong here, but it's faintly here. And I can't tell if that's just because I'm not getting really good read on this or am I getting a, a mixed population of cells and so I had to learn how to tag cells with markers to actually be able to do flow cytometry sorting. People are like well how many cells can you get this down to and I'm like I don't know I'm trying to get it down to a single cell so I got it down to a single cell I was pulling out the RNA from a single cell doing RT-PCR on the single cell to look at the expression of genes through the uh, development of those B cells. Fascinated, loved it, ended up becoming really good at it. I ended up writing a paper on it and publishing that and, and then I became a teacher because people wanted to know how to do this. As much as you write technical papers, it's different when they actually have you right there and you can show them and it's like, well, you've got to do this step. Oh, well, you don't have that in your paper. Oh, whoops. And you're working with microscopic drop sizes. I'm using tiny microtubes, the smallest tube I can get, and I'm looking for the drop at the bottom of the test tube. That's the sort of volumes I was working in. I was teaching and I loved it and then I became a lab manager and I thought, this is really cool. And I watched graduate students come through and I went, oh, good Lord, no, 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 no. So you got to a point where you had to make a decision. I did. And I actually made the decision to go off and become a technical specialist with companies that were actually building this technology. 
And when I went in to say, I'm going to leave, the answer was, you can't. I'm like, what do you mean I can't? You're not allowed to go. <laughs> they're like, you got to go and do your PhD. I'm like, I'm not doing my PhD. And they're like, would you become the operations manager? And I'm like, okay, what does that entail? Like, what do you think in that way? It was very much about not so much the individual science, although I love the science and I can talk to the scientists and I understand what they want to do. It was like, okay, what are you doing? Where's your inefficiencies? Why don't you know what's going on in somebody else's space? And trying to get people to talk to each other a whole lot more about the work that they were doing and the facilities they were using and the equipment they were using. What year was this approximately? 95, 96. At that time, creating a research environment where people could interact and learn from one another was a novel concept. Totally. So we're the mid-1990s, and there was probably some pushback and a lot of people unwilling to go down this path and share technology. And Some of our listeners might be thinking, well, that was just a Toronto thing. And it wasn't. There was little to no collaboration in labs at the time. As a rule, was it competitive? What changed it? I want to qualify that a little bit. There was collaboration on research initiatives between labs internationally, meaning, oh, we're working on B cells, you're working on B cells, or we're working on this part, you're working on that part. And there was still some competition there, but it was the idea fostering in, in working in areas that was happening. What was not happening was on much more on the technology side, right? Much more around the technology and the facilities and, and the actual sharing of how to do things. A lot of it had to do with the historic design of research facilities. So if you go back in time, research was very much singular individual work on these things. Bell, Aristotle, like you go back as far as you can, and it's always about an individual, and he or she was secluded in a space, and nobody really understood what was going on in their, their crazy little space so called a lab, and then they started to come out with things. And then you start to progress into the early 90s, late 1800s, early 1900s, and you start to hear about people starting to work in small teams. You start to hear people sort of say, well, wait a minute, these guys are starting to do things together, but it was still very much the traditional lab. Labs built in the 1800s and the early 1900s, up and until like 20th century, it was still very much, here's the four walls, here's the benches inside those four walls, and oh, by the way, here's essentially the key for you, and what goes on in there is your little domain. Everything was sort of behind locked doors, and there was a bit of a uh, possession, this is my space, this is where I'm doing stuff. And there was that protection of intellectual property. One of the hardest things to talk to anybody about is space. They're always worried that somebody's going to steal their stuff, steal their ideas. For many years, it was perpetuated that you had to have these small modules and you just worked within that module. And that's what it was. This is going back into the 90s. You know who designs labs? Who would you turn to that you'd think, oh, they'd have a lot of experience about a lab? Retirees. Right. This person has worked in research for the last 40 years. 
they've got all the experience in the world about working in a lab. That's a great person to, to talk about what our next generation of labs should look like. Okay. Well, hang on a second. They're going to tell you about the lab they worked in for the last 30 to 40 years. That's not what you want. When we start talking with architects and engineers and functional programmers, you need to bring to the table graduate students, techs, scientists that are in early stages, mid stages, and late stages. But you need that whole range so that people start being able to talk. Historically, it was just like, well, what do you think would be really good in a lab? And they turn to these retired people and say, what do you think would be really good? Well, make my lab bigger. Whereas when you start talking to some of the younger generation, and especially as we start to get into this digital age, again, we're getting into the 90s, the internet's are starting to be a thing, people are starting to talk about more how you share digital technology, digital information. They're like, oh, I want to know what's going on here, and I want to be able to share, and and technology is starting to become super expensive. It's no longer the test tubes. It's no longer the stir plates. It's, I don't know that I can afford it. Like, where am I going to get $100,000? Well, if you're going to get a group of people from different labs all sharing 100000 they better start sharing the technology. It's not going to go just into one person's lab. It's a combination of changing the philosophy of how we design things Adding the digital technology age of a much more open sharing type of an environment, but also technology becoming so much more expensive. You can't afford today to have 10 researchers, each with a mass spec in their own lab. That's just not reasonable. When I started pushing the whole idea of lab design, there's this great program called CFI. Do you want to learn about it and try to figure out what that is? I'm like, sure. And so here's this opportunity to get money to build labs. And what they were looking for was innovation, new ideas. Canada Foundation for Innovation. They wanted something different. They didn't want the old, same old. And I'd already had a little bit of a sampling of getting people to work together. And what I really wanted was to force the interactions between people so that they would share their ideas and they would share technology and hence was born the first idea, and I did it as a small floor plate of about 7,000 square feet at Princess Margaret, and said, we're going to build an open lab here. And we had about five different teams in there, and once they were working, they totally bought into it. All of a sudden, there's a lot more collaboration, a lot more camaraderie going on, and wait a minute, I don't have to have 10 sonicators. This was in the late 90s? Yes, 98, 99. That was about the time that UHN was officially created, was it not? UHN was officially created in 97. In 97, Princess Margaret joined with the entity that was known as the Toronto Hospital, which was made up of the Toronto General and Toronto Western. It became known as UHN with three entities, Princess Margaret Hospital, Toronto Western, Toronto General, 99-2000, and that was UHN. At the time, the research teams at UHN occupied approximately how much aggregate square feet? When I took over that portfolio from a space management, capital operations management, we had about 380,000 square feet. 
your team was the recipient of $216 million grant, which is one of the largest ever in Canadian history. Could you tell us a bit more about that? This was a fund called the Research Hospital Fund that the CFI put out. We did done a couple of CFI applications at this point and got pretty good at it. We kind of figured out the formula for doing CFIs. We had a fantastic storytelling team, really translation team. They were able to translate that science into language that people at CFI would easily understood. And I could take what the scientists wanted and translate it into the physical spaces and the equipment and thereby translate it into budgets. We wrote this massive, massive grant. I don't know how many days and hours of sleep I lost over writing and creating an extremely complicated grant. There was an absolute strategy in building that because when we were doing the application, they said, we may fund all or part of your application, but you can only submit one application. There was all the science that they wanted to do. And then I had to physically think about how can I make all this infrastructure intermingled in the grant so it's nearly impossible and have it yet in these distinct research innovative ideas, but have it all intermingled so see if I couldn't pull it apart. And literally we succeeded and they came back and awarded it to us and said, we couldn't figure out how to actually pull it apart. That's how <laughs> you basically got all of it. So you went to the leadership team at UHN with this gargantuan idea, this project, and do you remember what it is they said? Like, did you just say, just go do it? Or I'm wondering what that conversation was like. There was a small group of us. So, and I'm not the sole developer of this. There was a very small core group and myself leading on the infrastructure, sort of lab build equipment side. Jody was leading on the, the translate into language. And then Dr. Christopher Page was the scientist. We had a small scientific core group that we went to. And then I went to Chris and Jody and we sat down and I said, here's how I think this could be organized. And even Chris was like, okay, just whatever. And we went and sat with a small, but seven core lead researchers that we had. And I said, okay, here's your part. Here's your part. But nobody truly understood how all of it fit together. Except at the end of the day, of course, Chris did. And Jody was just like, I got the science part. You deal with that part of it. And we then took it to the exec at UHN. And then they just said, good luck. Go for it. Wow. That must have been an incredibly exciting time. It was. It was like super stressful sort of submitting this massive grant. It was kind of like, they're never giving us $220 million. Like, it ain't happening. If you know CFIs, will know the federal government would only give you 40%. And in normal CFI, the province will give you 40%. So you only have to come up with 20. That's still coming up with $40 million in chartly. The provincial government made it pretty clear early on they would not come to the table. Basically, it was $102 million from CFI, and the rest of it was internal. would never have been able to do it without the support of Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation, or at the time it was known as the Toronto General, Toronto Western Foundation. And this allowed UHN to build the, the first tower in Mars, the East Tower. So this was a, obviously a game-changing opportunity on a whole number of levels. 
and a huge undertaking. It more than doubled the size of your organization, didn't it? So the East Tower of Mars was 400,000 square feet of lab space. And UHN as an organization was like, that's stumbling your total footprint right now. And no, we don't see that. We could show quite clearly that 250 for sure was necessary. And the other 150 was going to be sort of future. And at the time, there was this great opportunity. Sick Kids was also looking to try and figure out how to expand significantly. We had this great relationship with Sick Kids. And so Sick Kids said, okay, we'll take five floors, 150,000 square feet, but we're probably only going to need it for somewhere between seven and 10 years because we've got a plan to build our own tower. And then we're going to move out. And we said, that's actually works out really, really well. Because at the end of that seven, 10 years, we'll take the space back. 2013, they moved out and we had moved them in in 2005. By that point, we were double. But UHN wasn't finished because then we had to go and build another tower huh. before sick kids moved out. Prior to this development, researchers in Toronto had to make do with whatever wet lab or R&D space they could big bore or steal. We again have a significant lack of wet lab space in Toronto and across Canada. Are today's circumstances the same as they were back then, or are they different? I think they're quite significantly different than they were back in the early 90s. Because in the in 90s, when great ideas were being generated science-wise, and people needed good labs, they went down to the U.S. They went internationally. They weren't here because there was no mechanism for doing an investment in research unless you were lucky enough to have some philanthropy. The introduction of CFI and then getting the provincial match across this country really started to spearhead this idea that, you know what, we really could and we really can have great research here, but we need to give them the right infrastructure. That opportunity today is very different because those opportunities for that kind of investment still exist. A little harder today on the provincial government. They're not, you know, they're, they're not, it's not that they're not investing in research provincially, but they are a little bit more interested in direct business as opposed to R&D. But the federal government is still very, very supportive of, of research and innovation. And then you've also seen a real shift in philanthropy, major philanthropy that is different than it was 20 years ago. You could find donors, but you weren't finding donors of 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars. There's a whole shift in the philanthropic community to support the development if we're going out and getting $25, $30 million, that's almost standard. And so there's a whole shift in the philanthropic community to support the development. Some people have said, well, why? Why is that shifted? Why is that there? Well, there's a few theories out there. The ones that I've heard kind of make sense to me is that you've got this whole generation of baby boomers and the generation just before that, who were enormously successful in the business world and that made a tremendous amount of money. And they're getting older and they're looking for better health care. Well, they've now come to realize and have all the gadgets and the widgets in the world inside the hospital, but how did they get there? How did that new innovation and technology, 
And so our donors are becoming much, much more savvy and much more interested in that latest, greatest technology that's actually going to lead to a cure for Alzheimer's, as opposed to just funding a new MRI. You and your team established new guidelines for wet lab and office support space that remain benchmarks in the life sciences sector to this day. What was your biggest challenge to implementing change, and how did you overcome that challenge? I'm going to tackle it in two different ways. The benchmark data was extremely important. So we came up with some standards, and we suggested that here's what the standards, and we didn't make them up. And one of the things that scientists love is data. They love data. And they love it when somebody who has a scientific training can actually go and gather data and then present data in a manner that they understand. At this point, I've got hundreds of thousands of square feet, hundreds and hundreds of employees. And I said, you know what? If I want to convince them about how much they should be using, I need to collect all this information. And so I hired a team of co-op students and said, I need you to go out and collect data. And it was very, very meticulous about the methodology of what they're collecting and the data that they pulled together. And then we did a whole series of analytics and I brought it back to the uh, research executive and said, here's the analytics, here's the benchmark, here's the standards. They all agreed because the data was clearly in front of them. And I said, okay, now let me show you a few anomalies. And so I figured out had actually shown some anomalies and then say, look, this group over here, they're nowhere near the benchmark. It doesn't mean it's not right. It just means that we need to investigate that. You can't say right off the bat, oh, now we're going to steal that back from you. No, I need to go and investigate that. Why do you have a higher benchmark? Well, it might be that the infrastructure you're using takes up more space. Or it might be, mm, you've had a few people get to the near the end of their career and they don't need as much space, but they didn't give it up. It became standard and accepted that we were going to be doing these evaluations. How much space should you have? Where should it be? And we listened to people, we presented them with data, we did all the analytics, we basically couldn't poke holes in it, and they loved that kind of information. That was how much space should you have, but then there was the whole, wait a minute, I want to change how you use the space. I want to get rid of the walls between the spaces, and I want you to work in a more collaborative environment. When we put up the East Tower, I told you I had done a pilot with a small group at Princess Margaret, about six or 7,000 square feet. You're going to remember the floor plate in the East Tower is about 26,000 square feet. And so the group that was at Princess Margaret was in the six. So, oh, yeah, we got this. No problem. We're moving. I had one other group that was like, yeah, we're going to the new space. Why? Because their old one was so bad they couldn't do experimental work. But then I have eight other floors that nobody wants to go into. I'm a year away from having to occupy this building. And I'm like, I'm building just these standard floors. I don't know what we're going to be able to do here. And so I went to Chris Page and said, Chris, we need to figure out who's going to move over here. And so after some finagling, particularly with people who had real space pressures, we say, we're moving you in. And I got all the, somebody's going to steal my stuff. Somebody's going to take my space. Somebody's going to overhear my research. And let's just get you over there. Let's try it. All the doors have card access on them, card access on the elevators. We know exactly who's working in there. We can put locks on your cupboards and your freezers. 
go there and give it a try. People got moved in within months. They were telling all their colleagues back in the space, you got to move. Within a year, we filled it. For 10 years, nobody would go to the old space, even though it was perfectly good lab space, but it was an old design. They all went, this is fantastic. There was no stealing of supplies, materials, intellectual property. None of that happened. So your methodology proved to be too successful. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I've learned in my career that real estate projects are lessons in trying to be as little wrong as possible. So with the benefit of, what, 17 years of hindsight, if you could turn the clock back now and have a do-over, is there anything you would do differently? I think there's always evolution. There's always things that adjust over time that you could probably do a bit better. There's a few simple things that we learned over time. When we were doing the East Tower at Mars, didn't have as much say over the base building. Had a lot of input to the base building, but when they were designing, they had, oh, look at all these passenger elevators, and here's this great big service elevator. And I'm like, yeah, but there's it's only one service elevator. Yeah, but that's what we got. That's how we're doing it. And I'm like, okay. In hindsight, you kind of come to realize that's a big mistake. The other thing that I learned is the operations team, the building operators that start to run these science buildings, they're specialists of themselves in any way, shape, or form. And it's not just about training them around the building and the technology within the building, but you need them to understand the importance of the work that goes on in the building so that they stop and think, you know, what are the hazards? What are the issues? What are the risks to them? What are the risks to the scientists? And oh, by the way, this is the work they're doing. It's just like, I mean, some of these people are doing stuff that is leading to disease cures. That's so important for your family. I'm sure there's somebody in your family that has cancer. Don't you want to support? You're part of the team that supports that. What I really try to push is that anybody who's in these lab environments and they're like, oh, but I'm not a scientist. I'm like, but you are part of the discovery environment. You make that happen. If you don't keep that building secure, if you don't keep it clean, science can't happen. That was something I learned over time. If I'd known enough about it way back when we were first starting that building, I think we could have avoided some of the growing pains that we had. From a design perspective, is that it's been too long since I've been actually in the lab. And if we were to do another tower, I'm going to go and pull that next generation of researchers and say, you tell me, you've worked in this space. I shouldn't be the one saying, what does the next generation of labs look like? I don't want to make the mistake that I accused other people of doing. Good point. Everyone in Canadian life sciences right now, I think, will safely agree that the lack of wet lab space has forced promising Canadian life sciences companies to move to the U.S. and elsewhere. How bad is the problem from your perspective? I think that there is a much greater potential for that kind of growth. I think the problem exists, but I don't think it's insurmountable. What you hear today is, I want to be here. I don't want to leave. How can you help me achieve that? One of the challenges I think that we have in our big urban centers for these types of expanded lab environments is the cost. 
lots of people like to compare us and say, well, down in the U.S., they're paying this kind of money. And I'm like, you know what? That's a totally different market. It's a totally different set of operating costs. There's a whole different financial picture down there than what we have here. And I worry a little bit around that side of it, that we are trying to think about market here the same way they think about the market in Boston or San Diego or New York. I think what we need to do is we actually need much better space for biotech. We need more incubator space. Um, and when I say incubator space, what I we need truly some of these, the model of the old research buildings where you've got these modules I mean, not quite as fixed as what they used to do, but with a dedicated team to support, operational team that can support that building. These are spaces for the teams that are four to six people needing wet labs. They can't afford to build a wet lab. They need to do some quick work for two years, three years, to determine whether or not they've got any success and be able to move on. That's got to absolutely be in direct collaboration with the academic world where they can actually access all of the services that the academics have as most of these startups are the academics deciding to move into that kind of a realm they're not used to having to operate as complete independent businesses they think they are but they're not we want to foster that level of biotech we need space that is affordable for those mid-sized companies so that they're close to the academics healthcare market where they can tap into enormous resources if they're trying to do trials or anything along that line. And, and so that's important. They need to be able to be set up as independents and it needs to be something that's affordable for them. We don't have that type of space. And my worry is that we're starting to steal academic, and we're doing it, UHN is doing it. We're stealing academic space to give to the companies. Why? Because we don't want them to leave. We need to find space that they can go to so that we don't price out our academics. My biggest fear is that people will see that the small biotech companies are so important that we're going to continue to give up space in the academic world or we'll only build a new lab space that biotechs with fairly deep pockets can actually afford and the academics will never be able to afford it. If you go back to the original concept that was Mars way back in the 90s, the whole idea was that you would have academics feeding into a business world, small biotech incubator, get into a bigger, and then, and then the initial idea was in the West Tower it would actually be a bigger biotech sort of independent type company. By the time they get big enough, they're probably not staying in the downtown core. They're going somewhere where it's much more affordable. We still need that model. So don't steal all the academic space and make it strictly for biotech, but we need to expand that. There's an opportunity today in the fact that there's so much commercial space that isn't going to be needed anymore for the office environment. Everybody thinks they can turn an office building into a wet lab building. Maybe we need to get people to stop thinking about how do you convert that building into a lab building, but how do we replace that building with a lab building? What's the favorite part of your job? Favorite part of my job is creating environments that really encourage people to work more closely together, spaces where people love to come to work. It should be somewhere you love to be, and it shouldn't be 
work in a negative connotation. And when I see that happening and I see the success and people happy in the science that gets to move forward without that headache and worry of everything in the background, then I know I've done my job and I'm very happy because I feel personally like I'm contributing to creation of better healthcare in this country. And the most difficult part of your job? The most difficult part of my job right now, honestly, Jim, it's volume, pure and simple volume. There's so much going on, so many cool ideas in terms of being able to move forward. There's only so much of me to be able to go around. And so I, for me, it's finding that balance. How can I spend some, you know, my time and energy and contribute the best I can? You are in a very stressful position. What do you do to relax? My favorite pastime is cooking. When I am like super stressed, I will go in and I will cook for hours or days in the kitchen because when I cook, totally forget about everything else and I just get into a creative science mode in the kitchen. That's my lab. And I just have a huge amount of fun. When I get the opportunity, I'm going to go away and I'm going to get out into a winter wonderland in Quebec and go cross-country skiing and skating. And in the summer, go hiking. Find a forest and get myself deep into the forest. Go hug a tree. What's the best advice you've been given that you would perhaps offer? Don't jump in uninformed. Figure out what you want to do, where you want to go, how you're going to do it. Ask yourself as many questions as you can about what you're trying to do. And if you don't know the answer... You need to go figure out that answer before you put yourself out down the wrong path. Never, ever stop asking questions. And you have to challenge yourself. Ask the questions. Don't just assume you'll figure it out. What is the next great big idea on your horizon? What I really want to see happening is I want to see a campus in the downtown GTA area that really expands on the idea that Mars had, but really at UHN, we've got an opportunity to create an environment where we've got patients, we've got docs, we've got nurses, we've got scientists, we've got techs, we've got graduate students, and in an environment where they all want to work together. And I think we need to continue pushing that forward. We need to create these environments for these melting pot of ideas to come together. The other thing, and you're starting to see a little bit more of this, and I'm hoping we're going to see more of it go forward, is the utilization of big technology. Don't go out and buy your fancy widget for $2 million. Find somebody who's that expert. I see that happening now. We start to see in its cores that are becoming now businesses. And those businesses are saying, come in, I can help you design your experiment. I can get you that information. I can get you that data out there. And I think we're going to see more of that pop up. If you look at some of the biotech that's out there, some of it is like, hey, I'm an expert in this technology. I can get you this better, faster, cheaper, and way more quality control than what you can do. 
after five years of investment. I hope we support more of that. What we need to do is train the scientists to be business people to actually make that happen. That is great advice. Ian McDermott, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a pleasure to reacquaint myself with a former neighbor from North Bay. <laughs> Jim, always a pleasure chatting with you, and thank you so much for having me on. I love, love, love talking about this world, if you can't tell. It's just one of my favorite things. That was Ian McDermott, Executive Director of Planning and Integration at UHN in Toronto. You can learn more about the great team at the University Health Network by visiting uhn.ca. This podcast was researched and produced by Tisha Prasad and brought to you by LabOccupier.com. The NGB Ideas podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit that's taking place in Hamilton, Ontario, this coming October. For details on the event, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. If you'd like to find me, I'm on social media at LabOccupier, and you can reach me by email at jwilson at leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D, dot com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>